0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, we are in the middle of a story, The Altar of the Dead by Henry James. This is part two, the conclusion of that story. I'll remind you of where we are, but if you haven't heard part one, you may want to listen to that first. You can just go back one episode and find it there. We'll also hear Emily Dickinson, poem 122, today on the History of Literature. Mm, Hello, hello, hello. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. I can't wait to hear how our story finishes the altar of the dead. What a great story. But first, let's turn to Emily Dickinson. And we jump now from poem 90 to number 122. This one has six stanzas of three lines each. To save us from reading this twice, I'm going to tell you up front that what it's about, a little bit about it. It's about what used to be called Indian Summer. In fact, that was the title that Emily's first editor's gave the poem. They titled many of her poems and it wasn't good. The poems are better without the titles. She didn't title them and she's smarter than all the rest of us put together. So let's go with her instincts. We don't need to spend too much time on the name Indian summer, the the nomenclature, that term, the phrase. It has a few potential origins, some of which are offensive. So let's just say that we're talking about that phenomenon that happens in northern climes where a warm period arises late in the fall, October, let's say, or November, maybe, where it feels, you know, that period, right? Those days. Some say it has to be after the first frost. It's been cold, winter's coming, and then all of a sudden it's warm again. It's a false summer. Feels hazy and quiet and like it's summer again, only we know it won't last. The Germans call it old woman's summer, old women's summer, apparently, as do the Czechs. In Ireland, it's the little autumn of the geese. And in Turkey, it's called pastrami summer. It's the best time of the year to make pastrami, apparently. So get out your your vats or whatever you use to make your pastrami. Anyway, here we go. Here's Emily, number 122. These are the days when birds come back, a very few, a bird or two, to take a backward look. These are the days when skies resume, the old, old sophistries of June, a blue and gold mistake. O fraud that cannot cheat the bee, almost thy plausibility induces my belief till ranks of seeds their witness bear, and softly through the altered air hurries a timid leaf. O sacrament of summer days, O last communion in the haze, permit a child to join, thy sacred emblems to partake, thy consecrated bread to take, and thine immortal wine. Mm, The key line here in this poem, this look at late summer, old woman's summer. What do we call it if we don't want to call it Indian summer? Pastrami summer. The key line here for me is permit a child to join. Who cares about this period the most? Who believes in this phenomenon the most? Who is fooled? Who has the most to gain? Not the grownups who've been through this before. They know it's fleeting. They know the problems, the the falsity of it. They aren't tricked. It's the children, the kids, as I was. I remember it well. It's a hot outside. Mom, can't we go swimming? Don't we get to eat popsicles and ride our bikes and stay out late and do all the things we love doing way back in the summer? A bird or two comes back, Emily says, but not more. Just one or two. And the bees aren't fooled. And the grown-ups, if anything, feel, as Emily does, that this only exposes June's false promise that the world would be warm and, and full of good weather forever. Those June skies, the blue and gold skies, were June's argument. Here I am, people. I'm so gorgeous, I might just be here forever. Well, it was plausible, but we know better, don't we? We know the leaves will die and fall. We know winter will come. We see the evidence of it. And we've just seen it. And if we fell for your promise in June, we're not going to fall for it now in October or November. If we've put the storm windows on, we're not going to change them out for screens just for a few days of this hot mirage. Unless we're kids. Unless we're kids, then we might. (laughs) Then we might beg to have our bicycles out. Let's pump up the tires. Let's all believe in summer again because it's here. We can feel it. Who else benefits from lack of knowledge? Or who has the, let me put it this way where else is this approach to the world an advantage? Children have a lack of knowledge, the advantage of blind faith. Well, I've given it away, haven't I? Religion. This is the last communion of the haze, says Emily Dickinson, the sacrament of summer days. It's offering itself up to us, but we need a bit of naivete to truly join in. To have that kind of faith, we have to set aside what we know of the real world in order to be as immersed into the spiritual in order to truly partake. Children, even more than birds and bees, embrace the late summer. The falsity of it fades in importance to them. What matters is it's warm enough to go swimming. And when it comes to religion, says Emily Dickinson, this is the attitude we need. We don't put on our reading glasses and neckties and point to the almanac and say, this isn't the right season for swimming. It will be cold again and soon enough. So clear that out of your head. Not in the November heat and not when it comes to faith in the Almighty. We don't let our brains tell us that we know better. We jump in. That is faith. That is is trusting something other than your experience. It's... Innocent reaction. With pastrami summer, as with religion. Okay, that was Emily Dickinson, poem one twenty-two. Our next one, sneak preview, is one of her monster hits. If you've been, if you've been wading through these deep tracks, listening to our album of Emily Dickinson poems. <laughs> Hoping to hear one of her number ones, one of the ones you've heard on the radio all the time. Well, you're in luck. Next time. That's going to be, we're going to be playing the hits. Okay, quick break, and then we'll resume with a summary of scenes from last time in our story, and then the conclusion of The Altar of the Dead. Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, here's a brief reminder of where we are in the story. Our protagonist, Stransom, a man in his 50s, has had much sorrow in his life. His one love, Mary Antrim, died after their engagement, but before their wedding night. He never gave himself fully to her, and vice versa. And now this regret-fueled energy has been redirected toward his number one pastime, which is to attend a church and honor his dead with candles. He's arranged this with the bishop, to have candles perpetually burning, one for each person whom he remembers. Mary, of course, is one of them, but also many others. The others, he calls them. His dead, his dearly departed. He's not particularly religious, but he refers to this as an act of worship. There's one big exception to this rule. He had a former friend, a best friend turned enemy, Acton Haig, who embarrassed Stransom in a very public dispute. Stransom cannot bring himself to include Acton Haig in this ritual. Everything about the ritual purifies and revivifies him. He finds it cleansing, spiritual. He believes in it. It's important to him. But he also has room in his heart for hate for this guy, Acton Haig. Now, while he's on this journey, leaving, leaving for hours during his day, people whisper about why he's leaving, but he's there. He leaves. He goes to this church church and stares at these candles, reflecting. While he's on this journey doing this, he meets a woman who is like him, a devoted mourner, the same church, and who also kneels, and kneels before his candles, in fact. He sees her so frequently that he comes to realize that the two of them are connected in this spiritual endeavor, and he feels good that he's done this for her. He thinks, well, she's lost a lot of people too, no doubt. And she can use this shrine that I've created to mourn her dead. He he kind of sees it as contributing to what he's doing as well. And slowly, over months and years, he gets to know her. But they're not headed toward marriage or a relationship. That's become clear. They've made that explicit. And it comes as kind of a relief. He likes having this ritual undisturbed. And in some ways, they're even closer than they would be because of this shared devotion They possess. It's a connection. He values her as a person who knows the power of what has for him become a very meaningful activity. And he hopes that after he dies, she, who's younger than him, he hopes that after he dies that she'll light a candle for him. And then he learns that unlike him, she's not there honoring a whole list of people. She, she's only there honoring a single person. He has many candles for many people, one candle per person. But she looks at those same candles and remembers only one, paying tribute only to one. All that light combines for her, all those flames combine for her, and she devotes herself and her time and her spirit to one person. And the person, as as Stransom has just learned, is Acton Haig, the very man whom Stransom himself refuses to mourn. That's the only candle that he will not light. There's two candles that aren't up there. One is his own, because he hasn't died yet, and one is Acton Haig, whom he refuses to mourn. So, we turn now to chapter 7. Chapter 7. He learned in that instant two things, one being that even in so long a time she had gathered no knowledge of his great intimacy and his great quarrel. The other, that in spite of this ignorance, strangely enough, she supplied on the spot a reason for his stupor. How extraordinary! He presently exclaimed, that we should have never have known. She gave a wan smile, which seemed to stransom stranger even than the fact itself. I never, never spoke of him. He looked again about the room. Why, then, if your life had been so full of him? Mayn't I put you that question as well? Hadn't your life also been full of him? Anyone's, everyone's life who had the wonderful experience of knowing him. I never spoke of him, Stransom added in a moment, because he did me years ago an unforgettable wrong. She was silent, and with the full effect of his presence all about them, it almost startled her guest to hear no protest escape her. She accepted his words. He turned his eyes to her again to see in what manner she accepted them. It was with rising tears and a rare sweetness in the movement of putting out her hand to take his own. Nothing more wonderful had ever appeared to him than, in that little chamber of remembrance and homage, to see her convey with such exquisite mildness that, as from Acton Hague, any injury was credible. The clock ticked in the stillness. Haig had probably given it to her, and while he let her hold his hand with a tenderness that was almost an assumption of responsibility for his old pain as well as his new, stransom after a minute broke out. Good God! God, how he must have used you! She dropped his hand at this, got up, and, moving across the room, made straight a small picture to which, on examining it, he had given a slight push. Then, turning round on him with her pale gaiety, recovered. I've forgiven him, she declared. I know what you've done, said Stransom. I know what you've done for years. For a moment, they looked at each other through it all with their long community of service in their eyes. This short passage made to his sense for the woman before him an immense and absolutely naked confession, which was presently, suddenly blushing red and changing her place again, what she appeared to learn he perceived in it. He got up and, "'How you must have loved him!' he cried." "'Women aren't like men. "'They can love even where they've suffered.' "'Women are wonderful,' said Stransom, "'but I assure you, I've forgiven him too. "'If I had known of anything so strange, "'I wouldn't have brought you here. "'So that we might have gone on in our ignorance to the last?' "'What do you call the last?' she asked, Mm -hmm. smiling still. "'At this he could smile back at her. "'You'll see when it comes.' she thought of that. This is better, perhaps, but as we were, it was good. He put to her the question. Did it never happen that he spoke of me? Considering more intently, she made no answer, and he then knew he should have been adequately answered by her asking how often he himself had spoken of their terrible friend. Suddenly, a brighter light broke in her face, and an excited idea sprang to her lips in the appeal. You have forgiven him? How, if I hadn't, could I linger here? She visibly winced at the deep but unintended irony of this, but even while she did so, she panted quickly. Then in the lights on your altar? There's never a light for Acton Haig. She stared with a dreadful fall. But if he's one of your dead, he's one of the world's, if you like. He's one of yours, but he's not one of mine. Mine are only the dead who died possessed of me. They're mine in death because they were mine in life. He was yours in life then, even if for a while he ceased to be. If you forgave him, you went back to him. Those whom we've once loved are those who can hurt us most. Stransom broke in. Ah, it's not true. You've not forgiven him, she wailed with a passion that startled him. He looked at her as never yet. What was it he did to you? Everything. Then abruptly she put out her hand in farewell. Goodbye. He turned as cold as he had turned that night he read of the man's death. You mean that we meet no more? Not as we've met, not there. He stood aghast at this snap of their great bond, at the renouncement that rang out in the words she so expressively sounded. But what's changed for you? She waited in all the sharpness of a trouble that for the first time since he had known her made her splendidly stern. How can you understand now when you didn't understand before? "'I didn't understand before, only because I didn't know. "'Now that I know, I see what I've been living with for years,' "'Stransom went on very gently. "'She looked at him with a larger allowance, "'doing this gentleness justice. "'How can I, then, on this new knowledge of my own, "'ask you to continue to live with it? "'I set up my altar with its multiplied meanings,' "'Stranson began, but she quietly interrupted him. "'You set up your altar, and when I wanted one most, I found it magnificently ready. "'I used it with the gratitude I've always shown you, "'for I knew it from of old to be dedicated to death. "'I told you long ago that my dead weren't many. "'Yours were, but all you had done for them was none too much for my worship. "'You had placed a great light for each. "'I gathered them together for one.' We had simply different intentions, he returned. That, as you say, I perfectly knew, and I don't see why your intention shouldn't still sustain you. That's because you're generous. You can imagine and think. But the spell is broken. It seemed to poor Stransom, in spite of his resistance, that it really was, and the prospect stretched gray and void before him. All he could say, however, was, I hope you'll try before you give up. If I had known you had ever known him, I should have taken for granted he had his candle, she presently answered. What's changed, as you say, is that on making the discovery, I find he never has had it. That makes my attitude, she paused as thinking how to express it, then said simply, all wrong. Come once again, he pleaded. Will you give him his candle? She asked he waited, but only because it would sound ungracious, not because of a doubt of his feeling. I can't do that, he declared at last. Then, goodbye. And she gave him her hand again. He had got his dismissal, besides which, in the agitation of everything that had opened out to him, he felt the need to recover himself as he could only do in solitude. Yet he lingered, lingered to see if she had no compromise to express, no attenuation to propose, but he only met her great lamenting eyes, in which indeed he read that she was as sorry for him as for anyone else. This made him say, at least, in any case, I may see you here. Oh yes, come if you like, but I don't think it will do. He looked round the room once more, knowing how little he was sure it would do. He felt also stricken and more and more cold, and his chill was like an ague in which he had to make an effort not to shake. Then he made a doleful reply. "'I must try on my side if you can't try on yours.' She came out with him to the hall and into the doorway, and here he put her the question he held he could least answer from his own wit. "'Why have you never let me come before?' Because my aunt would have seen you, and I should have had to tell her how I came to know you. And what would have been the objection to that? It would have entailed other explanations. There would, at any rate, have been that danger. Surely she knew you went every day to church, Stransom objected. She didn't know what I went for. Of me, then, she never even heard— You'll think I was deceitful, but I didn't need to be. He was now on the lower doorstep, and his hostess held the door half-closed behind him. Through what remained of the opening, he saw her framed face. He made a supreme appeal. What did he do to you? It would have come out. She would have told you. That fear at my heart, that was my reason. And she closed the door shutting him out. Chapter 8 He had ruthlessly abandoned her. That, of course, was what he had done. Stransom made it all out in solitude, at leisure, fitting the unmatched pieces gradually together and dealing one by one with a hundred obscure points. She had known Haig only after her present friend's relations with him had wholly terminated. Obviously, indeed, a good while after, and it was natural enough that of his previous life she should have ascertained only what he had judged good to communicate. There were passages it was quite conceivable that even in moments of the tenderest expansion he should have withheld. Of many facts in the career of a man, so in the eye of the world, there was of course a common knowledge, but this lady lived apart from public affairs, and the only time perfectly clear to her would have been the time following the dawn of her own drama. A man in her place would have looked up the past, would even have consulted old newspapers. It remained remarkable indeed that in her long contact with the partner of her retrospect, no accident had lighted a train." but there was no arguing about that. The accident had in fact come. It had simply been that security had prevailed. She had taken what Haig had given her, and her blankness in respect of his other connections was only a touch in the picture of that plasticity. stransom had supreme reason to know so great a master could have been trusted to produce. This picture was for a while all our friends saw. He caught his breath again and again as it came over him, that the woman with whom he had had for years so fine a point of contact was a woman whom Acton Haig, of all men in the world, had more or less fashioned. Such as she sat there today, she was ineffaceably stamped with him. Beneficent, blameless as Stransom held her, he couldn't rid himself of the sense that he had been— as who should say, swindled. She had imposed upon him hugely, though she had known it as little as he. All this later past came back to him as a time grotesquely misspent. Such at least were his first reflections. After a while he found himself more divided and only, as the end of it, more troubled. He imagined recalled, reconstituted, figured out for himself the truth she had refused to give him, the effect of which was to make her seem to him only more saturated with her fate. He felt her spirit, through the whole strangeness, finer than his own to the very degree in which she might have been, in which she certainly had been, more wronged. A woman, when wronged, was always more wronged than a man, and there were conditions when the least she could have got off with was more than the most he could have to bear. He was sure this rare creature wouldn't have got off with the least. He was awestruck at the thought of such a surrender, such a prostration. Molded indeed she had been by powerful hands to have converted her injury into an exaltation so sublime. "'The fellow had only had to die "'for everything that was ugly in him "'to be washed out in a torrent. "'It was vain to try to guess what had taken place, "'but nothing could be clearer "'than that she had ended by accusing herself. "'She absolved him at every point. "'She adored her very wounds. "'The passion by which he had profited "'had rushed back after its ebb, "'and now the tide of tenderness, "'arrested forever at flood,' was too deep even to fathom. Stransom sincerely considered that he had forgiven him, but how little he had achieved the miracle that she had achieved. His forgiveness was silence, but hers was mere unuttered sound. The light she had demanded for his altar would have broken his silence with a blare, whereas all the lights in the church were for her too great a hush. Pause here. What an interesting choice this is for Henry James to make. I hope it's coming through, through these, the prose, which has suddenly gotten elevated and a little bit occluded. Notice that he's not saying Stransom hated the guy, but she loved the guy. He's saying that Haig had wronged them both. The key difference is that she forgave Haig and he never did. And her forgiveness. Was a, a bigger hurdle, was a bigger step to take, given that her wronging was no doubt bigger, more dramatic than the slight that Haig had made with all of its publicity. What are we talking about here? We think that he has probably deflowered her in the way in the language of old. He's probably done something like that right? Well, what is our obligation to those who have wronged us in life and in death? Who are we to forgive or to hold on to our grievances? Hmm. What will happen to these two who are on different sides of this divide? Let's go back to the story. She had been right about the difference She had spoken the truth about the change. Stransom was soon to know himself as perversely but sharply jealous. His tide had ebbed, not flowed. If he had forgiven Acton Haig, that forgiveness was a motive with a broken spring. The very fact of her appeal for a material sign, a sign that should make her dead lover equal there with the others, presented the concession to her friend as too handsome for the case. He had never thought of himself as hard, but an exorbitant article might easily render him so. He moved round and round, this one, but only in widening circles. The more he looked at it, the less acceptable it seemed. At the same time, he had no illusion about the effect of his refusal. He perfectly saw how it would make for a rupture. He left her alone a week. But when at last he again called, this conviction was cruelly confirmed. In the interval he had kept away from the church, and he needed no fresh assurance from her to know she hadn't entered it. The change was complete enough. It had broken up her life. Indeed, it had broken up his, for all the fires of his shrine seemed to him suddenly to have been quenched. A great indifference fell upon him, the weight of which was in itself a pain, and he never knew what his devotion had been for him till in that shock it ceased like a dropped watch neither did he know with how large a confidence he had counted on the final service that had now failed the mortal deception was that in this abandonment the whole future gave way these days of her absence proved to him of what she was capable all the more that he never dreamed she was vindictive or even resentful It was not in anger she had forsaken him. It was in simple submission to hard reality, to the stern logic of life. This came home to him when he sat with her again in the room in which her late aunt's conversation lingered like the tone of a cracked piano. She tried to make him forget how much they were estranged, but in the very presence of what they had given up, it was impossible not to be sorry for her. He had taken from her so much more than she had taken from him. He argued with her again, told her she could now have the altar to herself, but she only shook her head with pleading sadness, begging him not to waste his breath on the impossible, the extinct. Couldn't he see that in relation to her private need, the rights he had established were practically an elaborate exclusion? She regretted nothing that had happened. It had all been right so long as she didn't know, and it was only that now she knew too much, and that from the moment their eyes were opened, they would simply have to conform. It had doubtless been happiness enough for them to go on together so long. She was gentle, grateful, resigned, but this was only the form of a deep immovability he saw he should never more cross the threshold of the second room, and he felt how much this alone would make a stranger of him and give a conscious stiffness to his visits. He would have hated to plunge again into that well of reminders, but he enjoyed quite as little the vacant alternative. After he had been with her three or four times, it struck him that to have come at last into her house had had the horrid effect of diminishing their intimacy. He had known her better, had liked her in greater freedom, when they merely walked together or kneeled together. Now they only pretended, before they had been nobly sincere. They began to try their walks again, but it proved a lame imitation, for these things from the first, beginning or ending, had been connected with their visits to the church. They had either strolled away as they came out, or gone in to rest on the return stransom besides now faltered he couldn't walk as of old the omission made everything false it was a dire mutilation of their lives our friend was frank and monotonous making no mystery of his remonstrance and no secret of his predicament her response whatever it was always came to the same thing an implied invitation to him to judge if he spoke of predicaments of how much comfort she had in hers For him, indeed, was no comfort even in complaint, since every allusion to what had befallen them, but made the author of their trouble more present. Acton Hague was between them, that was the essence of the matter, and never so much between them as when they were face to face. Then Stransom, while still wanting to banish him, had the strangest sense of striving for an ease that would involve having accepted him. Deeply disconcerted by what he knew, he was still worse tormented by really not knowing. Perfectly aware that it would have been horribly vulgar to abuse his old friend or to tell his companion the story of their quarrel, it yet vexed him that her depth of reserve should give him no opening and should have the effect of a magnanimity greater even than his own. He challenged himself, denounced himself, asked himself if he were in love with her that he should care so much what adventures she had had. He had never for a moment allowed he was in love with her. Therefore, nothing could have surprised him more than to discover that he was jealous. What but jealousy could give a man that sore, contentious wish for the detail of what would make him suffer? Well enough, he knew indeed that he should never have it from the only person who today could give it to him. She let him press her with his somber eyes, only smiling at him with an exquisite mercy and breathing equally little the word that would expose her secret and the word that would appear to deny his literal right to bitterness. She told nothing. She judged nothing. She accepted everything but the possibility of her return to the old symbols. Stransom divined that for her, too, they had been vividly individual, had stood for particular hours or particular attributes, particular links in her chain. He made it clear to himself, as he believed, that his difficulty lay in the fact that the very nature of the plea for his faithless friend constituted a prohibition. That it happened to have come from her was precisely the vice that attached to it. To the voice of impersonal generosity, he felt sure he would have listened. He would have deferred to an advocate who, speaking from abstract justice, knowing of his denial without having known Haig, should have had the imagination to say, ah, remember only the best of him, pity him, provide for him. To provide for him? on the very ground of having discovered another of his turpitudes, was not to pity, but to glorify him. The more Stransom thought, the more he made out that whatever is this relation of Hague's, it could only have been a deception more or less finely practiced. Where had it come into the life that all men saw? Why had one never heard of it if it had the frankness of honorable things?' Strandsom knew enough of his other ties, of his obligations and appearances, not to say enough of his general character, to be sure there had been some infamy. In one way or another, this creature had been coldly sacrificed. That was why, at the last as well as the first, he must still leave him out and out. Okay, that's the end of chapter eight. One more chapter to go. This has taken a turn. He hasn't told her the details of how Acton Haig has wronged him. Presumably, if the division between the two living parties is the issue of forgiveness, that would be an important story to tell. But the far more weighty absence in his mind is his not knowing what Haig did to her. It's implied that Hague ruined her. Out-of-wedlock sex is hovering over all of this. Has he, Had he dishonored her in this way, And yet she forgave him. Okay, that's mildly interesting. But even more interesting to Stransom, as well as to us, is why he cares so much about this. Why is he jealous? That's James's one. That's very Jamesian. Other writers would make the secret the thing. James takes that a step beyond. We can assume what the secret is. He he gleans it because he says, well, there must be some infamy there because I never heard about it. If this was so honorable, it would have been open. It would have been public. I would have known. Obviously, it was illicit because I never heard about it. And what happens with this illicit? She's ruined. She's wrecked. She's been wronged. Haig did it. But why do I care so much? Is this jealousy? But jealousy of what? Stransom knows he's not her lover. He's merely a friend. But is he in love with her? How else would such jealousy arise? Are we jealous even when we don't possess something, even when we have no claim? Well, of course we are. Of course we can be. That happens all the time, doesn't it? It's weird when you have a friendship with someone and it's platonic and you're glad that it's platonic. You value it. You say this is better than if we had ever dated or... If we had ever had a one-night stand, we have this beautiful friendship. We're closer because of it. You're glad of that. And then your friend has a one-night stand with someone else. Suddenly, those two are close in a particular way. They've shared that even if your friend assures you, oh, there's nothing to it. And you know, the two of you, you say, oh, we're like brother and sister, or we're soulmates, or we have a spiritual understanding, our friendship. I have lots of relationships like this. I'm sure you do as well. They feel very close and very meaningful, but it's true when you hear about those one-night stands that a part of you will think, yes, yes, we're, we're close. And maybe this platonic friendship we have, maybe it's even closer than sexual partnership. Certainly I feel closer to this friend than I do with some past dalliances, but but it's very different. And it's very much not as close too. And it's painful to contemplate that. And that pain feels like a close cousin to jealousy, if not jealousy itself. So that's where stransom is. He thinks, I can't forgive this guy. Not now. First of all, because I don't want to. Because he wronged me, but also he wronged her. Why would I forgive him when, when I, why would that initiate my forgiveness? If anything, that's I'm doubling down on my stance toward Acton Hague. No candle for you, Acton Hague. You dog. But there's another problem. It's going to come up in the last chapter. Remember his plan, his love for all these candles and his plan that this woman, his equal in the project of mourning, was going to light a candle for him someday. Doesn't he still want that? He does indeed. But now there's a schism between them. How does he navigate that? She's the only one who can do it. He doesn't have anyone else who's going to do that. No one else is going to add his candle to the shrine that he's built for all of his dead. No one else but her. And now they're divided. And why do I, Jack Wilson, care so much? (laughs) Why do I care? I've read the story and I'm still excited. I'm still excited to see how it plays out. This is the Jamesian magic. It's a magic trick. If I just describe this to someone, if I just describe the bones of this story to someone, they might think okay, he lights candles, she lights candles, or she, she, he lights candles, she worships at his. They had different people they were talking about. We all die. Who cares what's going to happen? And yet, I feel like I care very much whether Stransom finds out the secret, whether he resolves this dilemma somehow, whether this basically beautiful act of mourning that he's been doing for all these years, whether that's been selfish or has produced anything worthwhile or meaningful? Will it continue? What will happen? Let's take our last break and return for the conclusion to the altar of the dead. Chapter nine. And yet this was no solution. Especially after he had talked again to his friend of all it had been his plan she should finally do for him. He had talked in the other days and she had responded with a frankness qualified only by a courteous reluctance. A reluctance that touched him to linger on the question of his death. She had then practically accepted the charge, suffered him to feel he could depend upon her to be the eventual guardian of his shrine, and it was in the name of what had so passed between them that he appealed to her not to forsake him in his age. She listened at present with shining coldness and all her habitual forbearance to insist on her terms. Her deprecation was even still tenderer, for it expressed the compassion of her own sense that he was not abandoned." Her terms, however, remained the same, and scarcely the less audible for not being uttered. Though he was sure that secretly, even more than he, he, she felt bereft of the satisfaction his solemn trust was to have provided her. They both missed the rich future, but she missed it most, because after all it was to have been entirely hers.' and it was her acceptance of the loss that gave him the full measure of her preference for the thought of Acton Haig over any other thought whatever. He had humor enough to laugh rather grimly when he said to himself, Why the deuce does she like him so much more than she likes me? The reasons being really so conceivable. But even his faculty of analysis left the irritation standing, and this irritation proved perhaps the greatest misfortune that had ever overtaken him. There had been nothing yet that made him so much want to give up. He had, of course, by this time, well reached the age of renouncement, but it had not hitherto been vivid to him that it was time to give up everything. Okay, quick break. Are you following this? It's so strange. You'd think he'd say, I want her to light a candle in my memory, and so I can give up this Acton Haig thing that has come between us. I'll forgive. But instead he says, well, she's the one who was going to benefit from lighting a candle. I wouldn't even be here for it. So why doesn't she want to put this Acton-Hague issue behind us? She's giving up this great privilege and honor of lighting a candle for me. It was her future, not mine. Her desire to sacrifice that obvious pleasure that she was headed for must mean that she's more committed to Acton Hague than to me. Wow, that's quite a position. For someone who has spent his life thinking that he was doing this in service for these others, he's recognizing that it really was something he was doing for himself. Right? It's service, but it's selfish too. It's 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 full of delusion, but it also kind of makes it sense. For someone who's been doing this for the here and now, not for an afterlife in this secular way it makes sense so he's sort of saying well you were gonna honor me and now you're not you're the one who's missing out not me even though we know he's the one who really wanted the candle for himself okay back to the story practically at the end of six months he had renounced the friendship once so charming and comforting His privation had two faces, and the face it had turned to him on the occasion of his last attempt to cultivate that friendship was the one he could look at least. This was the privation he inflicted, the other was the privation he bore. The conditions she never phrased he used to murmur to himself in solitude, one more, one more, only just one. Certainly, he was going down. He often felt it when he caught himself over his work, staring at vacancy and giving voice to that inanity. There was proof enough besides in his being so weak and so ill. His irritation took the form of melancholy, and his melancholy of the conviction that his health had quite failed. His altar, moreover, had ceased to exist. His chapel, in his dreams, was a great dark cavern. All the lights had gone out, all his dead had died again. He couldn't exactly see at first how it had been in the power of his late companion to extinguish them, since it was neither for her nor by her that they had been called into being. Then he understood that it was essentially in his own soul the revival had taken place, and that in the air of this soul they were now unable to breathe. The candles might mechanically burn, but each of them had lost its luster the church had become a void. It was his presence, her presence, their common presence that had made the indispensable medium. If anything was wrong, everything was. Her silence spoiled the tune. Then, when three months were gone, he felt so lonely that he went back, reflecting that as they had been his best society for years, his dead perhaps wouldn't let him forsake them without doing something more for him. They stood there as he had left them in their tall radiance, the bright cluster that had already made him, on occasions when he was willing to compare small things with great, liken them to a group of sea lights on the edge of the ocean of life. It was a relief to him, after a while as he sat there, to feel they had still a virtue. He was more and more easily tired, and he always drove now, the action of his heart was weak, and gave him none of the reassurance conferred by the action of his fancy. Nonetheless, he returned yet again, returned several times, and finally, during six months, haunted the place with a renewal of frequency and a strain of impatience. In winter the church was unwarmed, and exposure to cold forbidden him, but the glow of his shrine was an influence in which he could almost bask. He sat and wondered to what he had reduced his absent associate and what she now did with the hours of her absence. There were other churches, there were other altars, there were other candles. In one way or another, her piety would still operate. He couldn't absolutely have deprived her of her rights. So he argued but without contentment, for he well enough knew there was no other such rare semblance of the mountain of light she had once mentioned to him as the satisfaction of her need. As this semblance again gradually grew great to him and his pious practice more regular, he found a sharper and sharper pang in the imagination of her darkness." For never so much as in these weeks had his rights been real, never had his gathered company seemed so to respond and even to invite. He lost himself in the large luster, which was more and more what he had from the first wished it to be, as dazzling as the vision of heaven in the mind of a child. He wandered in the fields of light, he passed among the tall tapers from tier to tier from fire to fire, from name to name, from the white intensity of one clear emblem of one saved soul to another. It was in the quiet sense of having saved his souls that his deep strange instinct rejoiced. This was no dim theological rescue, no boon of a contingent world, they were saved better than faith or works could save them. Saved for the warm world they had shrunk from dying to, for actuality, for continuity, for the certainty of human remembrance. Hmm. Pause there. Wow, wow, wow. Do I think Henry James went to a church this often and lit candles and, and that what he's doing here is writing up his notes? No. I don't, not really, but I do. Do I think Henry James took his grief from those sudden deaths we talked about last time? His sister, Constance Fenimore Wilson, Robert Louis Stevenson, all the regrets that they brought about. Do I think he took that feeling and turned it into a kind of metaphor for how he was feeling? How much tribute he wanted to pay? what it would mean how charged this was emotionally how deeply he wanted to express what he was feeling and how ineffectual his means were of doing it he has to borrow a religious ritual this has to be performed here's a man stransam who's found a way of doing it through these candles in this church and it ha- it becomes it, it becomes like an appearance of heaven to see these souls together, their flames turning white, bright, a mountain, a mountain of light, and it, it's like a view of heaven in the eyes of a child. It's a, it has to, in a sense, return stransom or James to a, a childlike view of awe and wonder. Death does this doesn't it? Death puts questions to us that we have no idea how to answer, and we have no good way of understanding our feelings about not being able to answer those questions. The light for Strasom is bright white, tall tapers, full of fire, and yet he's still groping in the dark. Back to the story. By this time, he had survived all his friends. The last straight flame was three years old. There was no one to add to the list. Over and over he called his role, and it appeared to him compact and complete. Where should he put in another? Where, if there were no other objection, would it stand in its place in the rank? He reflected, with a want of sincerity of which he was quite conscious, that it would be difficult to determine that place. More and more, besides, face to face with his little legion, over endless histories, handling the empty shells and playing with the silence, more and more he could see that he had never introduced an alien. He had had his great companions, his indulgences, there were cases in which they had been immense. But what had his devotion after all been, if it hadn't been at bottom, a respect? He was, however, himself surprised at his stiffness. By the end of the winter the responsibility of it was what was uppermost in his thoughts. The refrain had grown old to them, that plea for just one more. There came a day when, for simple exhaustion, if symmetry should demand just one, he was ready so far to meet symmetry. Symmetry was harmony and the idea of harmony began to haunt him. He said to himself that harmony was, of course, everything. He took, in fancy, his composition to pieces, redistributing it into other lines, making other juxtapositions and contrasts. He shifted this and that candle. He made the spaces different. He effaced the disfigurement of a possible gap." There were subtle and complex relations, a scheme of cross-reference, and moments in which he seemed to catch a glimpse of the void so sensible to the woman who wandered in exile or sat where he had seen her with the portrait of Acton Haig. Finally, in this way, he arrived at a conception of the total, the ideal, which left a clear opportunity for just another figure. Just one more, to round it off. Just one more. Just one continued to hum in his head. There was a strange confusion in the thought, for he felt the day to be near, when he too should be one of the others. What in this event would the others matter to him, since they only mattered to the living? Even as one of the dead, what would his altar matter to him, since his particular dream of keeping it up had melted away?" What had harmony to do with the case if his lights were all to be quenched? What had he hoped for was an instituted thing. He might perpetuate it on some other pretext, but his special meaning would have dropped. This meaning was to have lasted with the life of the one other person who understood it. Pause here. We're coming to the end. What is happening? He's thinking this through. He keeps thinking there should be one more candle. He makes room for one. Just one. One. At the same time, he's thinking this is meaningless. Obviously, a portion of this ritual will die with him. That was never in question, but he thought it might have some lingering effects that he could arrange to keep the candles burning. And he had a friend, most importantly. The friend he had, the woman who understood him, might continue it. Now that's in danger, too. I'm starting to get anxious because we don't have much story left. Can it be that Stransom has wasted his life on this? We know he's dying. Things are coming to the end. Back to the story. In March, he had an illness during which he spent a fortnight in bed. And when he revived a little, he was told of two things that had happened. One was that a lady whose name was not known to the servants, she left none, had been three times to ask about him. The other was that in his sleep and on an occasion when his mind evidently wandered, he was heard to murmur again and again, Just one more, just one. As soon as he found himself able to go out, and before the doctor in attendance had pronounced him so, he drove to see the lady who had come to ask about him. She was not at home, but this gave him the opportunity, before his strength should fall again, to take his way to the church. He entered it alone, He had declined in a happy manner he possessed of being able to decline effectively the company of his servant or of a nurse. He knew now perfectly what these good people thought. They had discovered his clandestine connection, the magnet that had drawn him for so many years and doubtless attached a significance of their own to the odd words they had repeated to him. The nameless lady was the clandestine connection, a fact nothing could have made clearer than his indecent haste to rejoin her. He sank on his knees before his altar while his head fell over on his hands. His weakness, his life's weariness overtook him. It seemed to him he had come for the great surrender. At first he asked himself how he should get away. Then, with the failing belief in the power, the very desire to move gradually left him. He had come, as he always came, to lose himself. The fields of light were still there to stray in. Only this time, in straying, he would never come back. He had given himself to his dead, and it was good. This time his dead would keep him. He couldn't rise from his knees. He believed he should never rise again. All he could do was to lift his face and fix his eyes on his lights. They looked unusually, strangely splendid, but the one that always drew him most had an unprecedented luster. It was the central voice of the choir, the glowing heart of the brightness, and on this occasion it seemed to expand, to spread great wings of flame. The whole altar flared, dazzling and blinding, but the source of the vast radiance burned clearer than the rest, gathering itself into form, and the form was human beauty and human charity, was the far-off face of Mary Antrim. She smiled at him from the glory of heaven. She brought the glory down with her to take him. He bowed his head in submission, and at the same moment another wave rolled over him. Was it the quickening of joy to pain? In the midst of his joy, at any rate, he felt his buried face grow hot, as with some communicated knowledge that had the force of a reproach. It suddenly made him contrast that very rapture with the bliss he had refused to another. This breath of the Passion Immortal was all that other had asked. The descent of Mary Antrim opened his spirit with a great compunctious throb for the descent of Acton Hague. It was as if Stransom had read what her eyes said to him. After a moment, he looked round in a despair that made him feel as if the source of life were ebbing. The church had been empty He was alone, but he wanted to have something done, to make a last appeal. This idea gave him strength for an effort. He rose to his feet with a movement that made him turn, supporting himself by the back of a bench. Behind him was a prostrate figure, a figure he had seen before, a woman in deep mourning, bowed in grief or in prayer. He had seen her on other days, the first time of his entrance there, and he now slightly wavered, looking at her again. Till she seemed aware he had noticed her, she raised her head and met his eyes. The partner of his long worship had come back. She looked across at him an instant with a face wondering and scared. He saw he had made her afraid. Then quickly rising, she came straight to him with both hands out. Then you could come, God sent you. he murmured with a happy smile. You're very ill. You shouldn't be here, she urged in anxious reply. God sent me too, I think. I was ill when I came, but the sight of you does wonders. He held her hands, which steadied and quickened him. I've something to tell you. Don't tell me, she tenderly pleaded. Let me tell you. This afternoon, by a miracle, the sweetest of miracles, the sense of our difference left me. I was out. I was near, thinking, wandering alone, when on the spot something changed in my heart. It's my confession. There it is. To come back. To come back on the instant. The idea gave me wings. It was as if I suddenly saw something, as if it all became possible. I could come for what you yourself came for. That was enough. So here I am. It's not for my own. That's over. But I'm here for them. And... Breathless, infinitely relieved by her low, precipitate explanation, she looked with eyes that reflected all its splendor at the magnificence of their altar. They're here for you, Stransom said. They're present tonight as they've never been. They speak for you, don't you see? In a passion of light, they sing out like a choir of angels. Don't you hear what they say? They offer the very thing you asked of me. Don't talk of it. Don't think of it. Forget it. She spoke in hushed supplication, and while the alarm deepened in her eyes, she disengaged one of her hands and passed an arm round him to support him better, to help him to sink into a seat. he let himself go, resting on her. He dropped upon the bench, and she fell on her knees beside him, his own arm round her shoulder. So he remained an instant, staring up at his shrine. They say there's a gap in the array. They say it's not full, complete. Just one more. He went on softly. Isn't that what you wanted? Yes, one more, one more. Ah, no more, no more. She wailed as with a quick new horror of it under her breath. Yes, one more, he repeated simply. Just one. And with this, His head dropped on her shoulder. She felt that in his weakness he had fainted. But alone with him in the dusky church, a great dread was on her of what might still happen, for his face had the whiteness of death. Oh! Dear Lord, Henry James, you have shattered me once again. That ending, the dead have come alive. In a sense, they flow back down from heaven in a fire of light. They're there in the church for stransom, as he's in his final minutes of life. His illness has made him woozy time for them to return to reclaim stransom his dead are there he's ready he's ready to forgive his one more candles act in Hague candle for Acton, isn't it but what does that mean to her his companion one more one more he's saying but to her that could be one more for Hague or it could be the candle that she knows she's supposed to light for him and she says no more No more. She says, I'm ready to let you feel the way you feel about Acton Haig. But more than that, I don't want to lose you. I don't want a candle up there for you. Stay here. Stay here with me. She doesn't want him to die. No, stay here. No more candles. But he's getting his last request denied by the one person he wants to deliver. Tell me there will be room for one more that you'll continue this ritual that you'll... You'll let me forgive Acton Haig. I've made room for him as you wanted me to do. And she says no more with a quick new horror. And he has fainted and the whiteness of death is upon him. The curtain drops. End of story. Well done, Henry James. And well done us, you and me, for making it through, dear listener. I'm glad you were here with me for this. I don't know how many of you made it all the way through. <laughs> One of you, hopefully, at least. Uh, I'll be lighting up some candles for us. We don't use enough candles, do we, in the 21st century? Time to bring that back. Gas lamps, we can do without those. LED lights work just as well for those street lights. In part one, Henry James was talking about that. How nice it is to have street lights. For him, it was gas lamps. For us, LED lights powered by wind and solar. How about that? But candles, too. That'll give us some atmosphere. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.